Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Trevor, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have you along. Uh, What is a a beautiful, uh, lovely day just prior to us entering into uh, Easter 2022. How's, uh, how's your Easter plans? Anything exciting coming up? Oh, we have one day on Easter Saturday where all my siblings and their families all get together. So about 50 of us will probably be together on that particular day. So that's the main activity over Easter. And where and where, where will that happen? Uh, it happens in Ipswich. Okay. Okay. And uh, do you do anything uh, you know special for the day or is it just catching up for a lunch and... Uh, you know, uh, reconnecting. Ah, uh, no, it's just everyone catching up together in the afternoon and having an evening tea, usually barbecue, something like that. So all the uh, cousins can get, you know, the siblings <laughs> and then the cousins, and now we've got second cousins that can get together as well to be able to all talk to one another and find out what's been going on. Uh, that's excellent. And Trevor, are you, uh, are you manning the barbecue or do you have a particular job for yourself? Uh, no, the barbecue is my brother's job. He oh, has really? to cook do the cooking. It's at it's at his place. <laughs> so, what's your job then? Just uh, uh, just just turn up and be there. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm since my father died. I'm sort of the patriarch now. So, I right, yeah, on the wall. So you just uh, you just get to enjoy uh, the fruits of everybody else's labour. Most definitely. It's uh, awesome, and does. Uh, does honey feature in uh, the uh, the proceedings? Oh, most definitely. Uh, we have to have honey there for the coffee and the tea. And right. Sometimes uh, if, you know, if there's some scones or something like that, you're going to have honey to put on the scones. So most right. definitely features. But you don't, you don't, you don't base the uh, barbecued beets in honey or anything, you know, exotic like that. Ah, oh, no, no. It's just a normal type barbecue. Just <laughs> naked sausages put on. No, no, no special preparation. Uh, fair enough. No worries. Well, look, Trevor, uh, perhaps let's uh, just get the podcast started. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're up to currently professionally. Well, currently uh, I'm chair of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council. Yeah. Uh, that's the peak industry body for beekeeping in Australia. My role is to sort of make sure that everything gets done within the industry, look at the issues, do a bit of planning and taking it from there. I have a, a CEO that works there, plus also an executive of another five people. So it's up to us. And then we have a council, which is made up of all the different peak, uh, the big bodies throughout Australia. So, for instance, all the state associations, things like the Queensland Beekeepers Association, the New South Wales Apiarist Association, uh, they're all represented. Plus, we have the people from the pollination industry, the honey packers and marketers, the queen breeders, and the uh, Amateur Beekeeper Association from New South Wales. So they're all the members of Arbic. Uh, right. A little bit different to a normal uh, group where uh, people are members of the association. But here, it's the peak bodies that are members of our association. And how long have you been in that role for? Uh, this is my second year as the chair. 
before that, from about not, uh, uh, 2012 up to 2019, I was the executive director at that time. And before that, I had many stints on the executive of the association when I was there beekeeping uh, full time. Uh-huh. Okay, well, let, let's come back to that uh, a little bit later in the conversation. Um, yeah, it's, it's not often that I get to talk to somebody who's a beekeeper and, uh, you know, it's something that I'm, I'm personally quite fascinated by. So, Trevor, tell us a little bit about your background. Where were, where were you born? Tell us about, you know, mum and dad, brothers and sisters and, you know, growing up. Yeah, well, I was born in Ipswich, uh, 1949. Uh, my dad worked in the railways after he... He'd been in the Second World War and uh, came back from the war and uh, moved in with my mother. She was a, uh, a, a, a mental nurse at uh, one of the institutions, a uh, place called Goodner between Ipswich and Brisbane, uh-huh. and she worked there. Uh, so they lived in Ipswich. I was the first of five, uh, two brothers, two sisters. Uh, one of the brothers, he's a nursing sister, so... I tell them I have, you know, extra sister by occupation. <laughs> uh, I, bet, I, I bet he loves that. Yeah. Uh, the next one worked for the sister worked for the education department. Another brother worked for the transport department here in Queensland. And my younger sister had all sorts of jobs and she's married to a Church of England minister. Wow. And so Trevor, um, uh, Ipswich back in 1949, not that you could probably remember it then because you're only just born, but, you know, what, what was Ipswich like back in the day? Because, um, gee, it's, it's come along such a long way but um, uh, in more recent years, but um, why did they go to Ipswich back then? Uh, well, they'd uh, been born a uh, place where we live now at Peak Crossing. Uh, that's right. where my mother and father came from, actually. Okay. And my dad, dad had to get a had to get a job, so he got a job on the railways because the the farm that they had wasn't a big farm, and there wasn't enough for all the uh, family to live on the farm. So that's why my father had to go and get a job. Ipswich then uh, was a big industrial, really industrialised. Then you know, had the railway workshops where my father worked. We had woollen mills, we had sawmills, yeah. um, and all sorts of other things like that that were industrialised. All the coal mines. So they, uh, a lot of them aren't there anymore today. And so um, you were saying, so both your parents came from Peak Cross and did that? Well, they lived here. My father originally he was born in uh, Victoria. Right. Uh, at a place called Garfield in Victoria. He used to proudly wear a uh, T-shirt that said Garfield. It's a town, not a cat. And, uh, <laughs> and, my, and my mother was born here and actually where we live now, uh, different house. It was where my mother was uh, raised. The same, right. same block of land. A different house, but the, ah. the same block of land. Right. So, so were they um, uh, childhood sweethearts before your uh, dad went off to the war? Yeah, they would have been. Yeah, they were definitely going out before the war because we have letters from uh, right. my dad sent back from the war and that, and also when he was based here in Australia when they were training. So, right. they met here at Creek Crossing. That's for sure. Oh, that's awesome. And so, uh, so Trevor, anyway, so, uh, uh, you know, Ipswich born and bred, um, you know, when you were growing up uh, through primary school and high school, you know, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? You know, do you have any grand plans about, you know, Trevor's future? Uh, so when I got to primary school, high school, I was sort of thinking about wanting to be a school teacher. Right. But then when uh, we did the old senior exam, the 
results weren't good enough to do that. So uh, I ended up uh, joining the forestry department in 1967 uh -huh. and uh, did a trainee course. And then after that, I trained to be a timber technician. Uh, 1983, I uh, left that and went over to the Queensland Department of Primary Industries, working in the beekeeping section there. And right. then in 1988, I left there and uh, my wife, Marion, and I started a partnership where we were doing queen rearing and honey production. And we kept going in that for 24 years till 1912. I uh, started to 2012 when uh, we sort of sold the business. It was basically because the old... Uh, the neck, the back of the knee were playing up and the doc said I wasn't allowed to lift heavy stuff. So beekeeping sort of ruled that out. So uh, we sold and that's what I took over as the executive director for the Australian Honeymoon Industry Council. So what what drew you originally to beekeeping? Was uh, it something that your, your, your parents did or, uh, you know, uh, how did you get excited about that? Uh, my grandfather used to keep bees. Uh, right. As I say, he, he actually lived on the block that where we live now and he had bees locally. He had about 80 hives, which in those days, back in the 1920s and 30s, were uh, yeah, sort of a fairly big number. He was a carpenter by trade. And during the Depression, there wasn't a lot of work for the carpenters. So uh, he, he, my grandmother told me that, uh, you know, was selling honey during the Depression that really got them during through the Depression. So when he shifted into uh, one of the suburbs, of Ipswich, uh, he used to have hives in the backyard and we used to go and have a look with him, not that we, we'd see too much, but then he sort of died before I got interested and uh, and one of my posts within forestry department, there was a chap there who was in beekeeping and uh, got talking to him and that's how I started and bought my first two small nucleus colonies in 1972. Right, okay. And so um, as somebody who, you know, has... Uh this romantic notion about have, having native bees in my backyard, as I've spoken to you about before. You know, so you mentioned uh, 80 hives. You know, I mean, how many hives does somebody need to have in order for it to be a legitimate, you know, um, income-producing uh, uh, activity? Well, some beekeepers do it part-time and have an income from there, but to be fully commercial, you'd need somewhere in the vicinity of about 450 to 500 hives to be fully commercial. Wow. And, and, and so how big a block of land would you need to hold 500 hives? Well, that's the wild thing about beekeeping. You don't sort of keep all your hives on your home block. You basically have a, a home block that you operate from where you keep all your sheds, yeah. uh, places where you extract honey and that. But beekeepers uh, rely on keeping their hives in all sorts of different places like state forests or private land and you're out there shifting them around all the time from place right. to place following what's ever flowering. So uh, you need a lot of bee sites out there to hold your four to 500 hives, usually about 100 hives in one load is what, what's there to say you need four or five sites at any one time to keep your hives on. And so how, how do they then... Um you know, maintain the ownership of the hive. Uh, it's out my, I'm thinking, oh, it's a little bit like having crab pots. You, uh, you drop crab pots all over the place and it's your crab pot, even though it's, you know, in an area that's frequented by other people. Is it kind of similar to that? Yeah, the uh, your hives, you have, usually when you register, anyone who owns one beehive or more has to register with their state departments right. uh, of agriculture or primary industries. 
Uh, usually, it's only those that you know, if you only get one or two hives, it's uh, free. But if you commercial, they do pay a fee for that. And they right. give you what's called a hive identification number or a brand. Yeah, you can put that on your hives. Some people also put stencils on their hive with their name and phone numbers and that on them. So it's basically uh, if you go to things like State Forest, you get a, a permit, a site permit off the uh, government, off uh -huh. the a particular department to put the hives there. Or if it's private land, then you come to sort of just a, an agreement with the uh, private landholder to put your hives there. Sure. And so is theft of hives or theft of honey, you know, does that happen or not really? Oh, yes, yeah, definitely happens. Theft of hives has happened. It happened to us. Uh, we had hives stolen once, uh, once from an area up around Gatton and we had bees up there and they turned up at Chinchilla. Oh, really? Stolen in. He stolen our hives plus hives from two other people and he was out uh, pollinating watermelons at Chinchilla. Right. So, uh, yeah, it happens from time to time, uh, unfortunately. Right. And so anyway, so uh, you, um, uh, you were advised you couldn't do any heavy lifting anymore. Um, obviously, you know, lifting and carrying hives around, they must be pretty heavy, right? Oh, yes. We have a lot of uh, mechanical assistance with that. Right. Uh, when I was doing it, we used to have a loader, like a boom what we call a boom loader. It was like a crane to pick yeah. the hives up and put them on the truck. Nowadays, all the commercial beekeepers and other people as well, those who keep them uh, a reasonable number, they have hives on pallets and they use uh, forklifts or bobcats okay. to right. pick those hives up, put them on the truck, tie them down, and then load the bobcat or, or forklift onto the truck and go with it and then unload it at the other end and unload the hive. So there's a bit of a fair bit of mechanical assistance available nowadays. It's not like the old days. I mean, there was always a, a phrase, the you know, beekeeper's back. So, uh, <laughs> and so, and so you were saying uh, that it was at that point you became much more involved in the association. Yeah, I had been on the executive before that, uh, particularly working in uh, you know, areas like I used to chair the biosecurity subcommittee then uh, in, within the association. So, 2012, when I sold up, I took over the executive director's job for seven years. Right. Okay, so um, 10 years. Uh, tell us about, you know, what was the, associ the association like 10 years ago? And, uh, you know, what have been some of the, you know, the, the pivotal or, you know, big moments over the last 10 years to where it is today? The association, basically, the principles are still the same 10 years ago as what, what happens now. We still have to react with governments. Uh, they put out legislation. They want comments. They put out draft papers. They want comments on that, so we do that. Uh, working with beekeepers, uh, resource access, that's the biggest issue facing uh, the industry today. Biosecurity is another big issue, keeping pests and diseases out of Australia. So the issues that were there 10 years ago are still here today and uh, I think they'll be with us forever and a day. And when you talk about uh, resource access, what specifically do you mean by that? Uh, a lot of our access that we have is uh, for Crown land, like State Forest, and here in Queensland National Parks. Uh, <clears throat> there was a, under the uh, South East Queensland Forest Agreement, it was struck in 1999, uh, we were to have access to uh, the state forest that had been converted over to national parks uh, by 2024. But uh, just now we've uh, had there's a bill going through the Queensland Parliament to give us a 20-year extension on that. 
And so that those particular uh, national parks that were state forests, there's up over a thousand acreage sites in those areas. So that was suddenly going to be denied to us, and that would make a lot of beekeeping businesses unviable. Right. So, um, uh, so how have you progressed that conversation? Uh, it's just basically representation to government from the Queensland Beekeepers Association over yeah. the years, working with the, uh, the state departments that are involved there, the government, and uh, just putting up our case. I mean, they I think they've sort of come to realise now that uh, you know for the beekeeping industry, it's uh, not just honey. There's uh, there was a, a federal department, uh, sorry, federal one of the federal uh, committees of the parliament put out a report a few years ago, said there's more to honey bees than honey. Right. I guess when you look at the value of pollination uh, within Australia, it's been, it average that was put out about oh, 2016, the paper was published, said that the average value for horticulture and agricultural crops in Australia that rely on honey bees for pollination is something around about $14.2 billion. So that's wow. billion, not billion. And yeah. so that figure would have gone up today because we have like the uh, National Farmers Federation and the federal government wanting to increase the national uh, output from farms to 100, 100 billion by uh, 2030. So a lot of those uh, you know, crops that they'll be growing and wanting to increase will rely on bees for honey pollination. A lot of crops out there, uh, people don't realise, for instance, you've got your almonds, your avocados, macadamias, all those. Some of our watermelons, rock melons, all those need honeybees for pollination. In a lot of cases, it's, uh, you know, no, no bees, no crop. And yeah. also when you think there's things like onions and carrots, when you people sort of think, well, you know, they just put the onion seed in or the carrot seed in and it grows and you don't need bees to pollinate that. But the question is, uh, where did the seed come from? And what happens is that the seed companies have grow their carrots and onions, let them go to flower, and they need bees to pollinate those flowers to produce the seeds to sell to the farmers. So there's a, a great reliance of agriculture and horticulture in Australia on honeybees for pollination. And uh, people, particularly some of the uh, politicians, are, are realising that now, and that's why uh, I think we're gaining more traction in that area. Well, certainly, uh, and it, once again, I'm not a beekeeper, but... Uh... Uh, you know, you've read some of the stuff in the media, um, and whether I'd be interested in your opinion, it's basically bees are under tremendous threat. But if we lost bees, you know, the world would be in a food crisis. Is that, is that um, an exaggeration or is that a reality? Oh, there's some reality to it. I mean, there's a phrase floating around that's attributed to Einstein and I know some people who wrote to the Einstein Institute in Israel, and there's no record of him saying it that says that you know, <laughs> if we lost our bees, the human race would not exist within four years. Well, right. Yeah. You know, if, if we had no bees here, there's still a lot of crops that grow that don't require pollination. There's things like you know, your wheat, rice, corn, yeah. oats, those ones, they, they're wind pollinated. So they don't require. So we'd still have food. Right. I thought, yeah, you think if you take out, yeah, your almonds, your watermelons, your rock melons, your macadamias, your avocados. Yeah, and your diet's going to be fairly restricted. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we say, a saying we have is, uh, you know, healthy bees, healthy people. So you get a good diet. Fair enough. And so, Trevor, uh, in terms of the association, you said it's a bit of a bit, it's a bit of unusual um, membership in that 
You don't have the individual beekeepers who are members. So, so tell us about, you know, the association and, you know, how it's made up, the kind of people who are involved, you know, what the activities are, et cetera. So, as I said, the members of our association for Arabic are the state associations, the six of them, the Queensland, yeah. New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, Western Australia. We have the Crop Pollination Association of Australia, the Honey Packers and Marketers Association, the Australian Queen Bee Breeders Association and the Amateur Beekeepers of New South Wales. So they're, they're the peak bodies and they're the members of ARBIC. They supply members to our council uh, that uh, meets from, from time to time. And so the is issues that we deal with basically are federally. Anything that's state-based, the state associations deal with that unless they come to us and ask us for help. So we let, you know, we let them deal with their state issues. So the federal issues... Anything to do with um, you know, marketing, export, uh, things to do with um, biosecurity in particular, keeping keeping the varroa mite out of Australia is a very big one issue for us. Uh, also, education uh, we do we do at the moment doing a big new communications plan, and we'll have a new website up and going soon. So, getting our story out to the public that's very important to us because. Once people realise you know, the value of honeybees to Australia, uh, then then they'll then they'll recognise now that we need to be able to have access to those resources and there some of those issues there. Uh, trying to keep uh, things like, for instance, just recently uh, beeswax coming into Australia, we've found has been adulterated and contains chemicals, and trying to keep that you know do something there with the federal departments to have have them check stuff coming in because the last thing we want is that sort of stuff turning up in our beeswax in Australia because as we don't have that varroa mite, we don't have to treat for it. And right. Therefore, we don't have those residues within our, our beeswax. And we get a, a good premium, a high premium price for our beeswax on the world market. So we want to keep that keep that going. So those are the areas, areas that we sort of need to work on. Uh, we've got a, a big bee congress coming up in June in um, uh, Sydney and celebrating it's 200 years now since we successfully introduced the European honeybee to Australia. First lot came in in 1822 in Sydney. So we're uh, sort of celebrating that, uh, running the Congress to get all the beekeepers together, bring the researchers together as well so they can present their papers and let the beekeepers know what's going on. So all those sort of issues we, we deal with over the time and, and from time to time, you might have something else comes up that you're not uh, sort of comes out of left field. Uh, and occasionally you get a few surprises. You might have seen that uh, new $2 coin that just came out for uh, celebrating the 200 years of beekeeping. We talked to the Australian Mint about that. So that's out now and apparently has been very well received. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I hadn't heard about that, but uh, I'll have to keep an eye out for it. And so if you look to the future, Trevor, what do you see as some of the challenges for the industry? And, and conversely or alternatively, you know, what are you excited about for the industry? Looking to the future, resource access is still going to be the biggest issue within, within uh, Australia for the beekeepers. Yeah. Biosecurity, it's another one. Why we can keep that barrage mite out, it makes it a lot easier for us. Uh, we have opportunities, I think, to market our honey better. 
Uh, we can uh, look at, we've gradually moved over from just selling honey as honey to floral varieties, uh, identifying where they came from, things like yellow box or iron bark. Um, you know, the Tasmanians are famous for their leatherwood. Uh, so what we've got here, even putting that onto the world market is to be able to sell that a little bit better with, within the world market. Yeah. Uh, and, and so export opportunities for our live bees, uh, we're always, always on the lookout to try and uh, extend that and uh, have other, other markets. So the more markets you can have, the better off it is for the beekeepers within Australia. So there's some of the areas that will yeah, definitely be there in the future and what we need to, to deal with. Um, you said export opportunities for live bees. So there is an appetite internationally for bees that are, you know, are growing, are raised in Australia, are they? Oh, most definitely. For instance, you take Canada. We send a lot of live bees to Canada because uh, at this time of the year now, actually, because in the Northern Hemisphere um, in Canada, if they're coming out of winter and right. they don't have the... See, their winter, they're totally different to us in their beekeeping in that uh, we keep bees outside. Bees work nearly 12 months of the year. Whereas in Canada, with their snow and everything, they either have to put the hives on pallets and wrap them uh, with insulation if they're right. out in the field. Uh, there's a big movement now towards taking them indoors and, and putting them indoors. And ironically, they have to heat the room to four degrees centigrade to, uh, because the temperatures outside are minus 30, minus 40 or so. Yeah, yeah. So when, when they come to this time of the year and they bring those hives out of the storage, indoor storage, uh, some of them may not have survived. So they need extra bees to... Um, build up their hives or they might want to split a hive and therefore we sell them a queen bee to put in the hive that they split. And for us, uh, it's coming to the end of our season, but we have the opportunity to do that. They don't have the opportunity, for instance, in Canada at this time of the year to raise queen bees. They have to wait till about uh, June or something like that before they can do something. So we can supply them and we've been doing Canada now for years and years, supplying uh, bees there. When we were in business, uh, we were mainly doing queen bees. We supplied Canada and about, well, you know, we also sent them up to places like uh, New Caledonia, Tahiti, Japan, Pakistan, French West Indies. So uh, those sort of places we were sending bees off to. So queen, queen bees in particular. So there's a market overseas for our live bees and we don't have that mite. So therefore our bees are very healthy. And, uh, you know, there's an opportunity. We used to be able to export into the US, but they put a ban on us, uh, which is, uh, you know, sort of a bit of a long story as to why they did it. It was basically because some of the local beekeepers didn't like us competing with them. Uh, we're still trying to get that opened up again. So the opportunities around the world to uh, be able to send bees. And, and so what part does the association play in, uh, in creating those opportunities? Basically, we, we deal with, uh, through the, you know, the Department of Agriculture, the Water and the Environment in Canberra, uh, access to these countries. You usually need uh, health certificates, permits to go into those countries. So the conditions are negotiated through the uh, Federal Department of Agriculture, but we have input into those areas. If we uh, have any uh, sort of hiccups along the way, uh, the, uh, something might happen if they question something that's in the permit, then we can uh, uh, provide the department with information uh, on what what it's about. And uh -huh. we usually know the background of what it's about. So it's working 
with the department to pick current markets open and then uh, you, know, you might get an inquiry from uh, some place that wants uh, some bees or even honey and uh, the department can then you know, officially write to that uh, country's department to find out what the conditions of entry are. Right. Well, I, I, I find these conversations fascinating because uh, you know, I, I love honey, but I don't know anything about beekeeping. And once you start to sort of be, you know, peer into it, you know, who would have thought that Australia is uh, breeding bees that are then sent around the world to help other countries with their, uh, their bee populations? That's quite, a, that's exciting, right? Yes, yes, yeah, we've been exporting bees. I mean, there's a, a report from back in 1896 of a, right. a queen breeder here in, uh, not far from Ipswich, actually, the Red Bank Plains, who was exporting uh, queen bees all over the world to English-speaking countries and other countries. So that was 1896 that we started exporting, so we've been doing it ever since. Uh-huh. Oh, amazing. And so, Trevor, uh, uh, you know, as you said earlier, yeah, 2012, you, you basically, um, you know, were putting your attention into the association. But what else do you get up to? What, you know, what fills your days? Oh, at, at the moment, I used to play golf, but the old back sort of you know, <laughs> brought, uh, you know, brought, brought an end to playing golf. Right. Uh, yeah. Basically, at the moment, doing a bit of uh, research into family history. Okay. Uh, I've got a... My great grandfather, I've got his handwritten diary from 1890 when he took oh, yeah. bees from up near Mackay down to Musselbrook in New South Wales. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we've followed that route so far. And uh, I'll write it all up one day. We'll take some photos, plus also looking at other family history as well. So, and uh, my ter- term as chair of the of Arvic will end in June this year when we have our AGM. So, one of the things to do a bit of travelling, go back to North Queensland. We used to, when I was in forestry, I spent a few years in North Queensland working up there. So we go back up there for a trip and also want to go. Never been to Birdsville, want to go to Birdsville. So, right. We, uh, so, what, so, once I finish the chair, the opportunity will be then to do some travelling. Fantastic. I was literally in Cairns uh, uh, last week. I took my kids up there for a few days for a bit of a uh, a school holiday. And so, Trevor, you know, from a beekeeper's point of view, what's the mecca in the world? Like, where, if you can go to one place, you know, purely because you want to go and check out their bees, where would you go? Uh, over the times, we've usually gone to either US and Canada. They're the right. places we've gone to to check. Uh, not that they're any much better than what we are. Uh, you know, we sort of think that we're... We're pretty good in uh, you know, our husbandry and things like that, but it's always good to go over there and have a look and see what they're doing. Right. Uh, I did a, I did a four-week study tour there in, you know, was it uh, 1986 for US and Canada, looking at different beekeepers' operations. And it's good to look at them because you get to uh, sort of see something and you can you don't bring that, you know, for instance, they might be doing something, you can say, oh, well, I could adopt part of what they're doing there and bring that back. So right. we sort of have a reasonable you know, relationship with those beekeepers and they seem to be the places we sort of tend to go to uh, to see what they're doing. But, uh, you know, we don't think they're doing it often much better than us. There's often different ways they're doing that, doing it different ways they're doing it that we can uh, then uh, adopt some of that and bring it back and make it a bit better for us here. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, uh, I remember a few years ago there was a conference on headhunting and obviously you know executive headhunting is what i do and i sent some members of my team to this conference in america thinking 
oh, you know, they'll be able to learn some tips and tricks and, you know, to help us. And they came back and they went, oh, actually, you know, we're pretty much doing it better than anybody else. So uh, it's nice to occasionally get out there in the world and sort of self-validate that you're doing the right thing. Yeah, it's always good to you know, go and have a look because uh, there's always something you can learn. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go and looking at something and there's something you can see that they're doing that uh, you mightn't adopt in whole, but you can adopt part of it or something like that, uh, something they're doing. So we from it's the same here within within uh, Australia. We have beekeeping field days uh, from time to time and all the different people who are selling gear or doing something else within the industry have stalls there and you go along and, yeah, you always go along. It's not that, uh, you know, you know most of it, but there's always something that you sort of learn that particular day that you didn't know before. Definitely. And, Trevor, you mentioned uh, earlier, you know, there's now these different varietals of, you know, uh, um, honey based on the type of plants that the bees may be, um, uh, 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 you know, sourcing from, etc. What's your favourite? Oh, the favourite for me is a thing called swamp mahogany. It's one that you don't really get a lot of. Uh, it's, it's one of the local steaming family. It grows uh, around the local area here. It's one that I've sort of over the years. But uh, the next one along, of course, is Yellow Box. That's one of the most popular ones within right. Australia. Uh, it's always been there. Of course, unless you haven't been brought up on the coast, then uh, often a lot of the people have been brought up on the coast on tea tree. Right. It's one of the darker honeys, but uh, that's what you've been brought up on. So it really depends on what you've been brought up on over the time and stuff, what sort of sticks in your mind, and uh, uh, it's just one of those things. Uh-huh. But mahogany's your preference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one, is you, you, you won't see it in the shops because there's not a lot of it around the place. We used to be able to uh, work it in uh, particular places. Actually, ironically, where we used to get it, uh, is now Springfield, all that area there. Oh, yeah. Okay, right. It was only, only up until about 25 years ago. We used to keep bees all through that country there, but there's nothing left there now. It's all houses, but that's where we used to get a lot of our swamp mahogany from that area there. Well, Maha, you know, uh, the, the guy, Maha, uh, you know, who developed Springfield, uh, I think he's made more than enough money. He probably doesn't need to sell any honey. <laughs> no, no, no. no, it's just it's just that that's one of the we talked about the resource the resources before it acts to have yeah. resources probably as I say that area there was one there was another beekeeper of myself we used to keep our bees all through that country there it was right great beekeeping country but yeah now it's gone it's all yeah. it's all it's all houses I mean you you sort of go through that area, you go where the shopping centre is, or your iron shopping centre, and yeah. you sort of look at it and say, oh, we used to put bees just over there, and it's all right. or car park or something there. So that's one of the problems we have. You're sort of losing resources to development like sure. that. So, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Trevor, it's been a fascinating conversation, and, uh, you know, certainly the work the association is doing seems to be, uh, you know, incredibly valuable. And, um, and uh, as a lover of honey and... Uh, uh, as a person who uh, wants to have a few native beehives in my backyard, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat to you. Have a fantastic afternoon and uh, look forward to speaking again soon. Will do, Richard. Thanks a lot. Okay. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. 
while you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.